So, do you like podcasts? Do you like movie podcasts? Yes! 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 If so, check out All Things Film, a collection of the best film, TV and movie podcasts on the internet. Groovy. Film Rave, it was only a pound. The podcast on Fire Network, Daily Grindhouse, Mass, Movie Side, UK, and of course, Film Sploitation. Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. What? Anyway, all the best podcasts, film and TV related, under one roof. That's all things film. Boys and girls, go back to your studies. Believe me, nothing in life is free. Well, oak and dread, Batman. All Things Film is 100% free. And you can find out more on iTunes. Search All Things Film or online. Allthingsfilm.thefilmpodcast.co.uk Oh, sorry. I think I must have pressed the wrong button. Is anyone left? Toto? I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This Week in Sleeves, with your host, the Great Lord, Joshua Regal, and Sleazy K. This podcast has been rated Category 3. No one under 18 may be permitted. Let's talk some fucking shameless war crime exploitation again, and maybe for the last time. Uh, it's certainly the last of the serious chats on that topic connected to filmmaker Mu Tung Fei, uh, who planned a trilogy of movies on uh, on war crime, uh, starting with Men Behind the Sun from 1988, as covered on this show. And Mu popped up uh, again in 1995 to continue his study of Japanese war atrocities in graphic detail, this time turning to the 1930s and the Nanking Massacre in his 1995 movie Black Sun, The Nanking Massacre. And my name is Lisa Kay, and with me is again the great Lord Joshua Regal. Uh, no titty good time, but uh, welcome uh, nevertheless to the show again. No titty good time. That gum it. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it's creatively fulfilling, this, I, I got to admit, on a serious level, because um, I was very happy with the uh, replies and uh, feedback we got for, for our Men Behind the Sun episode. So, Absolutely. Uh, like, researching and bringing context to, albeit known history, we're not telling any news uh, here as such, it's uh, it's a good thing. And I, I, I got to admit, I wasn't intimately familiar with the Nanking Massacre and its, uh, like, famous, um, the famous people in history that right. uh, were like present uh, westerners and what have you and we'll talk of all of that very briefly so let's uh, let's not have fun but let's uh, let's do it uh, nevertheless you know I, uh, if there's one laugh in this episode i think it might be a very inappropriate one but, but you never know they're <laughs> <laughs> already laughing look at that <laughs> uh, but okay let's uh, rock and roll this week is least uh, this is the show you're listening to it's our 29th episode we are located on the podcast on fire network podcastonfire.com 
you'll find the show, all the other shows and bonus episodes on there. Email us if you have any feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. We also do uh, get feedback and do feedback on Facebook. Like our page, facebook.com forward slash POF network and interact with us on that uh, page. But uh, primarily in the discussion group, you can do that. You search Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search bar or just follow the link on that very page I just said. We have uh, tweets available for you, twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. I have writing prepared for you. Uh, uh, Sogoodreviews.com and sleazykvideo.com. The latter is my video review site. I do category three movies, including Men Behind the Sun. I do Ninja Exploitation because I like Richard Harrison being exploited by Godfrey Ho. So I, I want to review tons of that stuff because I'm, I'm gleeful and evil that way. Yes. Yes, very much so. Very much so. I just like to watch people, you know, be unhappy. That's yeah, all. yeah. Look at him. He wishes he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, his eyes are dead. Look at him. They're black. Gordon the Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> Gordon. Uh, yeah, that's my favorite name that they gave uh, Richard Harrison in these various movies. Gordon. You know, there's yeah. like at least three of them where he's Gordon the Ninja. Yeah, Richard occasionally, maybe in some of the Thunderbolt movies, there was Richard. So, uh, what are we gonna call him? Hmm. I got it, boss. I got it. I got it. I got it. Great idea. Great idea. What? Richard. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Cut print. Moving on. Uh, so I also do Taiwanese uh, movies over there, uh, new wave movies from the early 80s, late 70s, and uh, in various genres. So uh, visit and uh, have a good time and all of that. Twitter.com forward slash so good reviews is my Twitter account. This week's list is on iTunes. Rate and subscribe. And if you have the time, please leave a written comment. That would very much be appreciated. And you can stream us over at Stitcher Radio. That is available online, but the application for your iPhone, iPad, or Android is the smoothest way to do so. And once you've downloaded, enter Stitcher Enter this week's list, for instance, and uh, you'll see different search results, I'm sure, but also have the option to add us to your favorite list. So thank you very much for your support over there. Shelflifeclothing.com. I don't think he's going to do a Black Sun Nanking Massacre t-shirt anytime soon because that would be kind of disrespectful. And shelflifeclothing.com is all uh, about uh, the fun with the t-shirts, the mashup movies, the made-up movies uh, placed on t-shirts, and uh, that is fantastic wear. So check that out. They're all about a titty good time. They are, and uh, we will be eventually, but uh, uh, we're going to get through this first. And by episode 30 and onwards, we're back on track again. So, Uh, Unless Mutunfei actually makes his third uh, movie in the trilogy, then then if so, we will be back uh, in this territory again. (laughs) Right back to it. Uh Uh, And uh, shelflifeclothing.com is that URL. Uh, You have some plugs, my friend, so go ahead. Uh, buriedcellular.net. Uh, currently, not a whole lot going on over there. Uh, I'm waiting until I get out of school. Which when when should, do you get out of school? Oh God, should be about uh, twenty four weeks. twenty three. <laughs> <laughs> no, about four weeks, and then I'll have the summer to myself. And thank God. I and will. and, and then, then you'll finish. You're 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 an actual. Uh, pardon me if I'm being ignorant here, but you're you're trained to be a nurse. Is that it? Yes. Okay, so it's not too simplified to, to say that correct. Okay. Yeah, it's nursing school. It's uh, very, very difficult. Very, uh, you have to dedicate everything to it when you're in, right in the midst of it. So like. Uh, and, and and you have and and, uh, and did podcasts and then some. You've written and then some. You did podcasts and then some. Not just this podcast, but another podcast. So cue another plug. <laughs> the Trashy Trio. Mm-hmm. And uh, currently, don't have a new episode out right this second. But uh, we should in the next two weeks, and there should be a familiar voice on there. I wonder who that would be. Bork, bork. 
Bork Bork. <laughs> this Kenny Bork Bork B. I am Kenny B. Snurgen, Snurgen, Snurgen. I'm going to do that voice throughout the, that entire guest spot. Uh, it's, that joke will fit in 30 seconds in. <laughs> He's on his second hour of Snurgen, Snurgen. <laughs> Kim, what did you think of the New York River? Snurgen. <laughs> oh, so you liked it. Oh, that's good. Bork. Bork. <laughs> He's not like this on his other podcast. I don't know what went wrong. <laughs> what went wrong? He's having a stroke. <laughs> Joshua, you're a trained nurse. <laughs> yes. Sir, are you feeling paralyzed on one side? What's going on? Ken, describe it. Bork. He's fine. He's fine. <laughs> That's normal. Uh, Treasure Tree, indeed, you have your URL and you're on uh, the various podcasts and what have you. Yeah. The, just Google us, the Trashy Trio. It's uh, trashytrio.lipson.com. But if you just give us a Google search, you'll find uh, the Facebook page. You'll find us. You'll find all kinds of sexiness. And uh, what would you say is like the main focus? Or um, like, uh, do you focus on a specific country? Or do you focus on a specific subject in short for those who don't know? No, it's, it's right in the title. It's trashy movies, just wherever. Like, it, it usually breaks down to... Uh, it's three of us, me, Jay, Wendy, and uh, we're constantly picking different movies. But uh, Jay's usually picking something from Japan. I'm probably picking something from Hong Kong. And uh, Wendy's picking something from Italy. But, you know, we you know, go different. You're done some American, like, uh, trash as well, so to say. Uh, like, um, uh, what's there, some circus movie? You did Olga's House of something. We did Olga's, yeah. <laughs> Not a circus movie, but... Uh, it's sort of, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, Olga's House of Shame, we did that one. That one was from the States. Uh, I had thought about picking pieces for this coming upcoming episode, but New York Ripper was more fun. So, uh, But that's like a, sh- a short musical break, and then we're into Black Sun, the Nanking Massacre. And uh, uh, as, long, as, long, as long background as we think is suitable in terms of the, um, the history behind it, because the movie does ex- doesn't explain everything, but does a sufficient job, of course, of setting it up. But uh, we're going we're gonna to talk some horrific background here, so uh, we'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, and we are going to talk Black Sun, the Nanking Massacre, and the history behind it. The movie is from 1995, and a plot uh, taken from IMDb. It doesn't have much of a central plot. Uh, it, it focuses on a few Chinese characters um, that pops up every now and again. Certainly, the main focus is on the likes of various Japanese army officials. Uh, but I thought the following suited this section anyway, that the first plot that pops up on uh, IMDb. Uh, in 19- 1937, Japanese troops raid the Chinese city of Nanking to execute a plan massacre by subjecting over 300,000 helpless civilians to various tortures and atrocities before slaughtering them all. 
and that is uh, that is uh, very much uh, the truth. Uh, not according to all people out there, but uh, <laughs> there's some. We'll get to why there is there is some deniers over here. Like there is Holocaust deniers, there is Nanking massacre deniers as well. Uh, but we'll get to that. Here's where it all turns unpleasant, obviously, for this show. Uh, way before we even talk the movie, as we uh, talked of um, talk of the real life events that inspired. Mutenface movies and uh, movie and uh, it's uh, referred to as the Nanking massacre or the rape of uh, Nanking. Uh, I think it's now referred to as uh, Nanjing. Uh, in summary, before we go into detail, uh, this was um, an episode of mass murder and uh, rape and crime committed by Japanese troops uh, against the people of um, and in Nanjing during the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1937. Uh, that conflict was a military conflict uh, fought primarily between the Republic of China and the Empire of Japan and lasting between 1937 and 1941. And the um, Nanking Massacre took place during a six-week period starting from December 13th, 1937 uh, and onwards. And uh, as, as it is with many of these things and various uh, Things in history that uh, where where many uh, where the death toll was high, it is hard to determine an actual number of deaths as the different sides of the conflict see it differently. You know, it's not not all documented, and the different sides of the conflict see it differently. Uh, scholars debate that it's likely anything from forty thousand to two hundred thousand people. Uh, the Chinese government has listed a um, a number of three hundred thousand plus victims. Uh, it's also a controversial number. Um, uh, especially, you know, in Japan, there's uh, um, th th there is denials all over the place globally. Um, not just Japan, but in Japan, th there are a few ultra nationalists that deny the Nanking massacre ever happened. It yeah. didn't happen. Nothing happened. And uh, I, I don't know what to say to that, really. I've uh, like during research for this and everything like that, I came across like YouTube videos, like. Uh, you know, the, the fake of Nanking and stuff the like that. The fake of Nanking, are they instead of the rape, oh. Yeah, instead of the rape of Nanking, they call it the fake of Nanking. And, you know, I, you know, I can't be bothered to watch stuff like that because, I mean, my God, how much, you know, photo, photographic and video evidence do you have to have to, you know, prove this sort of stuff? But, yeah, it's people that I guess they're basing most of their information upon. Like well, they say it's you know this number, and it, it could have been that. You know, it's like and like fuck, you've done no research and stuff like that. It's just general conspiracy theory BS, and it's really really sad that people would do that with you know something this horrible. It seems like there's no rational like counterpoint because if you can have a rational exp uh, debate between people, that mm -hmm. would be sort of interesting i suppose but it sounds just like that uh, no this is this nye, nye, nye. i mean if you've ever tried to have like an actual debate with like a conspiracy theorist and stuff like that it usually starts off with okay let's talk about this subject you know you know here's here's all my evidence now what do you have uh, fuck all your evidence what about this other conspiracy yeah and there, and there we are already then it spiraled out of control already right you're already onto a different subject and you're like well i didn't bring up evidence to debate that conspiracy. I'm here to talk to you about this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, well, you can't explain this. You can't explain that. You can't explain it. It's like, well, if you gave me 10 minutes, I could probably Google around and find you the, the story. But, yeah, I, I've done my fair share of that crap. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, the, again, the difficulty in trying to provide accurate numbers uh, were due to military records being intentionally de- destroyed at the time or kept secret after um, Japan's World War II surrender in 1945. And the different sides argue again that it's all greatly exaggerated. It's all propaganda. Uh, and I mean, it's um, again, you, the evidence is so clear. I'm sure the number is, is going to can vary. I don't care if it's, if it's 40,000. My God, that's a massacre. That is a massacre. I mean, it can vary, and uh, you're very right. You're very, very, very right. I much, very much agree. Uh, so that, that's that. Um, uh, continuing the summary, there were people put on trial and found uh, guilty by the Tokyo Tribunal. And uh, while other key perpetrators like Prince Asaka, Wasaka, of the imperial family evaded the war crime tribunal by getting immunity by their allies, so we've heard that story before. Uh, the official Japanese response in the wake of all this has essentially been that they've admitted to acts of killing. But a vocal minority within the government um, probably still has a firm opinion. I think it's a, that those voices still can be heard. Uh, that deaths were military in nature and no crimes ever occurred during this six-week period. Those are nationalist kind of, and those also trying to look into revising the history and books and kind of look um, like present truths and counterpoints often face controversy and op- opposition, like um, aggressively so, I think. Uh, but thankfully, voices uh, in Japan, within Japan, seem fairly strong as well. The rational voices as um, the decades move on, as plenty of apologies do seem to occur, but not mm. from the high government levels as uh, such. Uh, uh, but as we've already said, it's a hard thing to deny what happened in Nankin because so much evidence is there, so much um, uh, survivors are still there that we remember it uh, vividly. They were like 10 or 12 years old at the time or what have you. Um, and it's been a stumbling block, this, uh, the memory of the Nanking Massacre um, in uh, Sino-Japanese relations since the early uh, 70s, or even you know, uh, from, from where it started and up until now, I guess. Uh, they are important trading partners, uh, these two. But Chinese people still have a strong sense of mistrust and animosity towards Japan that originates from the memory of uh, these types of uh, war crimes. And the sense of mistrust is, um, of course, strengthened by uh, this uh, fact that Japan is unwilling to admit it, uh, this, uh, that this massacre occurred. There's no official government response uh, and, and no apology, uh, apology for the atrocities. So. Yeah, and that sort of the mistrust and everything like that, that felt you know, very, very uh, openly in uh, Hong Kong and Chinese cinema, even you know, to this day. They're pretty much the go-to villains for just about you know, every type of film that you can think of. Yeah, and, and often not very, um, it's very black and white portrayal. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you, you, you get examples, of course, where where there's some uh, more character given to each side mm-hmm. of this conflict. You know, Jet Li's Fist of Legend and stuff like that, where you kind of you have the good Japanese characters and everything like that, and that's kind of more of a progressive type thing, you know. You, you don't always see that. A lot of times it's just pure black and white, but, you know, occasionally you'll run into that film that has like good Japanese characters and surprisingly enough the film that we're covering today kind of has a bit of that you know it does it does uh, yeah. face um, script and production definitely was angry but uh, mm-hmm. not angry to the extent where the portrayal of the Japanese were all cartoony and uber evil yes they are right. but there is some counterpoints within the Japanese as well you're very right in, in fact you know one of my notes, and we'll get into it with the film, but one of my notes says that this feels like a slightly less angry film, you know, purely angry, like uh, Men Behind the Sun. This is slightly more um, on an even 
keel, I guess. It's more uh, it's more open. Definitely, I agree. Um, the capture of Nanking happened um, after a Japanese invasion of Shanghai. Um, they did lose a lot of troops there, but eventually they captured that city. And the general staff headquarters in Tokyo initially wasn't sure they were going to move ahead due to the heavy casualties and low morale. But on December 1st, the order came. Uh, the central uh, the Central China Area Army and the 10th Army were to capture Nanking, the capital of the Republic of China at the time. Chinese General uh, Chiang Kai-shek anticipated Nanking would fall, and in order not to risk uh, further elite troops uh, uh, and not defend like hopelessly, most forces were withdrawn from Nanking. Um, th- this was also kind of a part part of a defensive strategy they attempted, where they wanted the Japanese army deep into China and would try and wear them down uh, that way. Uh, which I think uh, I, I don't know if that was a hit and miss strategy. It certainly didn't help Nanking uh, as such. Uh, General Tang Zhengxi was left in charge of the city to like take on this battle, to be ahead of this battle, uh, along with uh, about 100,000 largely untrained soldiers from the prior battle in Shanghai. Um, before the Japanese arrived, they blocked up roads, uh, guarded the Nanking port, they burned villages, destroyed boats in order to prevent widespread, uh, widespread evacuation. And um, civilians obviously still fled in droves. Uh, they they antici- anticipated bad bad stuff was ahead and uh, not only because of that pending danger but they feared the military would uh, target all um, like uh, useful assets in the eyes of the enemy you know burning crops and what have you so um, you know they, they fled uh, they fled because of that too and uh, the government relocated uh, during this time and left in the beginning of December 1937 and all that was left essentially was an international committee led by German businessman and Nazi party member John Rabe, which we'll talk of uh, later in the show. Um, uh, many Westerners had fled the city, but about 27 foreigners remained. Uh, 22 eventually formed this international committee, with the full name being International Committee for the Nanking Safety Zone. Um, many were obviously continually fleeing because of the advancing army and the morale sank, you know, in the people, in the soldiers, everywhere. And uh, when the occupation started, uh, that certainly uh, wasn't any thing that was going to be turned around. You know, it turned so black and sour that obviously uh, hope was lost uh, pretty quickly. And um, it got to the point where the remaining Chinese citizens in Nanking were ordered to move into the agreed safety zone of Nanking, where the Japanese were agreed that they wouldn't you know, pursue civilians. Um, and the committee took over as essentially de facto government of the city at this point. As the Japanese approached the city, there were reports of crime being committed along the way between Shanghai and Nanking, with uh, one notorious documented case of two officers that were later executed for war atrocities, by the way. Uh, they were competing which one could kill 100 people first using only a sword. Uh, horrible stuff, and this was not something that was kind of made up, uh, and um, this was covered in the media. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it was a sporting event, essentially, you know, daily. Like, how many is there, are they up to? You know, 27, 50. I mean, there are clippings of this available on the Wikipedia page when they're, with them posing, uh, maybe not with uh, heads and what have you, but uh, them posing, it's said to be... Uh, uh, to be these uh, two soldiers, if you will, if you will, it is documented. As I said, it's also a story that's been debated for decades. If it's at all uh, true, that could have been propaganda, but there's really no telling, you know. I mean, it's such a. Ma- it's not like if this isn't true, then that negates every argument of the Nanking massacre. No, it's such yeah. a. Mi- it's, it's such a minor thing, or the horrible thing within it that um, 
you know, 100 out of the 300,000 if uh, that many were killed. Clues you into the mindset, though, you know, of uh, at the time of how the Japanese basically essentially viewed the Chinese as logs, you know, Kindle for burning. The catalyst for the sanctioned killings seemed to be appointed by Commander Prince Asaka Yasuhiki, who arrived on the front line on December 8th and was informed 300,000 Chinese troops in the vicinity of Nanking were surrounded and negotiation had started so they could surrender. Uh, allegedly, Prince Asaka issued the order to kill all captives and thus a fuse was lit. Um, there's been a debate here as well who really issued the order and uh, the extent of Asaka's blame. The fact of the matter is, no one stopped anything either. Yeah. You know, it went on. Uh, even though the ultimate sanction of the crime could be traced back to Emperor Hirohito's sanction of the Japanese army's proposition to remove all constraints on in, of international law on the treatment of Chinese prisoners, even back in August of 1937. So there was like this free-for-all uh, sanction by the emperor to an extent. It's weird. Like uh, it's kind of like in the film. They kind of the film we're talking about today. There's a scene in it where like a, a Japanese general uh, essentially goes before all of his other generals or you know the people he's in charge of, and they're all talking about you know basically raping and killing you know and like. Oh, we should do this because I don't know what the hell there's why their reason is, but he's saying, oh, you know, rape is bad, you know, and we shouldn't kill just innocent people, blah blah blah. Well, you skip forward a little bit and you find out that that general really believes the men are doing the right thing when they're raping women and killing, you know, innocent people and everything. But he's like, well, you know, because of politics, I can't just go out and openly advocate it, you know, so I have to go on record as saying that I disagree with it and things like that. But well, yeah. <laughs> The other generals and everything like that, regardless of what that on top general said due to politics or what have you, still ignore you know what he says entirely, and rape still happened, and you know murdering still happened and whatnot. You know, it's weird how like um, essentially they're being ruled by a living god, but yeah, 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 yeah. The emperor is you know a living god, like this uh, immortal, uh, immortal god. And uh, my god, they they got to change their opinion and got their uh, like viewpoints crushed, as opposed when the emperor surrendered. I mean, um, it, yeah. it, it is that intense, you know. We saw it in in the crappy Man Behind the Sun, Man Behind the Sun Three, <laughs> where they break down when they hear like the emperor has um, surrendered. You know, it's uh, it's essentially like. Uh, it's life ending for them because the emperor is all uh, is is an immortal, you know, higher state kind of being. Mm-hmm. And, and despite all that, it's just that mentality of you know, well, we're better than these people, so we can treat them however we want. It just continued, you know, regardless of what anybody said or anything like that, or politics or what have you. It really seems as if this in this situation they were just let loose to do whatever and they let the blackest part of their hearts lead them. Yeah. There was further talks between the higher-ups and obviously an effort to stop any widespread uh, massacre. And uh, the, the International Committee suggested a plan for a three-day ceasefire for Chinese troops to leave Nanking, 
while the Japanese uh, held their ground, something that General Zhang uh, Kaichek needed to approve. And he had fled to Hankou two days earlier to establish a new site for the Chinese military HQ. And uh, John Rabe sent a telegram to Chiang, who had ordered uh, that Nanking uh, would be defended down to the last man. But Chiang refused the proposal, and by the deadline of December 10th, uh, General Matsui Ivane ordered the start of the assault on Nanking. The Chinese troops quickly decimated and retreated, and chaos ensued. Um, Chinese troops tried to steal clothes from civilians to, to blend in. Uh, some were shot by the supervisors as they, as they fled. And on December 13th, for this infamous day in history, the first divisions of the Japanese army arrived in Nanking. There's actually documentary footage of them arriving like it's uh, a parade. It's a very organized mm-hmm. parade. It's a good thing. We're here. We're your saviors. And that's kind of how they saw themselves. You know, we're, we're going to give peace to the people by doing what we do. Rape and murder. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy, uh, the rationale behind it. Uh, uh, they started pursuing Chinese troops, uh, and uh, they were of the opinion that this was not an easy battle. Uh, there was intense resistance, and uh, there was peril uh, present uh, from the Chinese side. That was still an issue. They might defeat us, these uh, these uh, people in uh, in minority, you know, these decimated people. And uh, the safety zone was entered by the Japanese uh, in an effort to clear out alleged plainclothes soldiers from civilians. Um, and around this point of the timeline, we begin throwing around the term massacre as things got out of hand. Uh, there seemed to be no focus or in a concentrated fashion, like in terms of the weeding out of troops, you know. Uh, the city fell, obviously, and uh, over the course of the six weeks that followed, Japanese troops engaged in rape, murder, theft, arson, and countless war crimes. Uh, uh, this became documented by, um, via journals maintained by the likes of uh, John Rabe. Uh, there's been first-person testimonies uh, subsequently by survivors, plenty of photographs that weren't destroyed, even a 16 millimeter film documentary shot by American missionary John McGee which is still in existence, at least partly, and has been used uh, in documentaries. And possibly footage of it exists uh, within Black Sun. I thought I recognized some that's also in other documentaries. This documentation was also used as basis for complaints to the Japanese embassy. Uh, Obviously, the massacre never really stopped. Uh, But we're at a point where Joshua is going... We've mentioned John Rabe a few times, and uh, Joshua is here to tell us a little bit uh, more about John Rabe, who's not a uh, main character in Black Sun or anything, but he does appear. Uh, So who was John Rabe, my friend? Uh, Yeah, John Rabe shows up uh, along with um, George uh, Fitch, George Ashmore Fitch, two members of the... uh the International Committee. There we go, International yes. Committee, Free Zone or whatever. Uh, yeah, he was uh, essentially a German businessman who uh, helped uh, save an estimated 250,000 people during the Nanking Massacre. Uh, he used his Nazi party ties in order to, you know, kind of build this safety zone where people could come in and uh, try to get away from the Japanese, even though eventually they were going to make their way into it regardless but uh he uh had a diary and like you mentioned like a lot of uh stuff that we know about deeply about his situation come from his journal and also uh his letters written to the japanese and things like that um i have a little quote here from his diary 
It's not until we tour the city that we learn the extent of the destruction. We come across corpses every 100 to 200 yards. The bodies of civilians that I examined had bullet holes in their backs. These people have presumably been fleeing and were shot from behind. The Japanese march through the city in groups of 10 to 20 soldiers and loot the shops. I watched with my own eyes as they looted the cafe of our German baker, Herr Kiesling. Uh, Hempel's hotel was broken into as well, and almost every shop on Chungshang and Taipei Road, Taiping Road. When uh, Robbie helped set up the safety zone, he tried to use his ties between Germany and Japan as a means of keeping peace, use that Nazi status as a way of slowing down the atrocities. Uh, Robbie initially played politics with the Japanese uh, for allowing him to set up the safety zone and things like that, but soon enough he wrote some pretty nasty things to the Japanese heads and, you know, pretty uh dude had balls yeah yeah the, the thing is I, i'm going to talk a little bit later about the movie called john robbie and and they show exactly that that he he is not uh he, he tries to play it really democrat uh, democratically and mm-hmm. uh, he has believed in that the japanese won't go this far you know as long as right. we're rational and in return they will be rational and eventually he sees that, that there is none after the war, uh, Robbie was arrested by the Soviet NKVD, then by the British Army. Both, however, let him go after intense interrogation. He worked sporadically, earning very little. Uh, he was later denounced for his Nazi Party membership by an acquaintance, and uh, he was stripped of the work permit that he had been previously been given by the British zone and had to undergo a very lengthy denazification process. Um, his first his first attempt uh, was rejected, and he had to appeal for his work permit and stuff, in the hope of regaining the permission to work. Yeah, um, he had to pay for his own legal defense costs, which basically depleted his savings and left him broke. Uh, so, unable to work, support his family, and with all of his money gone, the family survived basically in a one-room apartment by selling all of his Chinese art that he had collected uh, during his time there. Still didn't provide enough, and fam- eventually his family suffered from malnutrition. Uh, he was formally declared denazified in 1946, but thereafter he continued to live in poverty. Um, family lived on wild seeds, and the family would, like, make soup out of it and stuff like that and use dry bread. I mean, they were pretty horrible off at that point. So uh, in 1948, actually, the citizens of Nanking learned of uh, the situation of the Robbie family, and... Uh, they uh, got together a large sum of money, which was like equivalent to $2,000 in the U.S. now uh, or then, but was like worth about 20000 you know, as compared to now. So they gave him $20,000, and the city mayor went to Germ- of Nanking went to Germany and uh, brought along a giant supply of food for the Robbie family. And uh, all the way from mid-1948 – all the way up to the communist takeover, uh, the people of Nanking also sent like food packages each month for their family. And uh, yeah, many letters were sent back by Rabe and his family, expressing gratitude for the generosity. He eventually died in 1950, so uh, he didn't live for very long. Uh, obviously, um, poor and uh, impoverished, and uh, yeah, he still couldn't support his family. And uh, despite this uh, generosity, but yeah, that's uh, you know a, a, um, a very unusual hero, you know, a Nazi hero that wasn't recognized by his own party. Yeah, because in the movie John Robert, it says at the end that uh, he uh, they thought he was collaborating with the Chinese, uh, so the Nazi party was standing. 
behind him. Uh, based on knowing essentially nothing of what went on, they just oh, you Chinese, uh, you know, you know, good, <laughs> you know, we hate you now. Uh, I mean, it's a horrible uh, way to treat like a dedicated Nazi Party member uh, because he wasn't. Uh, it didn't seem like he was overly critical of uh, of Hitler or anything like that because he uh, was uh, dedicated to the party. So. But uh, you, you also mentioned another character in passing, uh, George Ashmore Fitch. Yeah, yeah, I don't have a whole lot on him, but he was basically an American Protestant missionary, like uh, many of the foreigners in China during that period, and uh, he served with Rabe on the uh, Safety Zone International Committee. He's actually in the film as well, uh, though he has a very small part, but uh, he also had another little entry from his diary that I found interesting. Uh, It says, uh, complete anarchy has reigned for ten days. It has been hell on earth. To have to stand by while the very poor are having their last possessions taken from them, their last coin, their last bit of bedding, uh, and it is freezing weather. The poor rickshaw man uh, had his rickshaw taken, while thousands of disarmed soldiers who had uh, sought sanctuary with you together with many hundreds of innocent civilians are taken out before your eyes to be shot or used for bayonet practice, mm. and you have to listen to the sounds of the guns that are killing them, while a thousand women kneel before you crying hysterically, begging you to save them from the beasts who are preying on them, to stand by and do nothing while your flag is taken down and insulted, not once but a dozen times, and your home is being looted, and then to watch the city you have come to love and the institution to which you have planned to devote your best deliberately and systematically burned by fire. I, this is a hell that I had never been uh, envis- envisaged. Uh, it's, um, it's hard not to be affected by even text on this subject. It's one of the like, strong... Uh, this carries such a strong power. Uh, and uh, reading such a... They shouldn't write it in a subtle way. You know, This is like mm-hmm. this spontaneous, like this is what it is, it's hell on earth, and it's hard not to be affected by that. Um the only sort of upside is the fact that some were convicted of war crimes, as we uh, alluded to earlier. The, um, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East estimated that and, um, uh, about 20,000 women were raped, in, uh, including infants and the elderly. Yeah. Um, even in a systematic fashion where soldiers just went door to door raping and then killing immediately uh, through graphic mutilations. I mean, we're talking canes and bottles uh, shoved up vaginas and what have you. Um, it's, there's documented footage of uh, this stuff as well, you know, photographing the uh, moving imagery um, from the hospitals and what have you. And, and this uh, diary entry right smack in the middle of uh, this uh, chaos uh, gives you further idea of uh, how much of a hell Nanking became. It was written by Reverend James M. McCallum, and I quote, I know not where to end. Never have I heard or read such brutality. Rape, rape, rape. We estimate at least 1,000 cases a night and many by day. In case of resistance or anything that seems like disapproval, there is a bayonet stab or a bullet. People are hysterical. Women are being carried off every morning, afternoon and evening. The whole Japanese army seems to be free to go as it pleases and do whatever it pleases. End quote. And um, a little bit more from John Rabe. He wrote in one of his many comments... um, uh, about the Japanese atrocities, and this is from December 17th. Uh, two Japanese soldiers have climbed over the garden wall and are about to break into our house. When I appear, they give the excuse that they saw two Chinese soldiers climb over the wall. When I show them my, my party badge, they return the same way. In one of the houses in the narrow street behind my garden wall, a woman was raped and then wounded in the back, uh, wounded in the neck with a bayonet. A bayonet. 
I managed to get an ambulance that we can take her to uh, Kulu Hospital. Last night, up to 1,000 women and girls are said to have been raped, uh, about 100 girls at uh, Jin Ling College uh, School for Girls alone. You hear nothing but rape. If husbands or brothers intervene, they're shot. When you hear and see on all sides, what you hear and see on all sides is the brutality and the bestiality of the Japanese soldiers. I believe that was uh, that was a letter, wasn't it, that was sent to the uh, Japanese? Uh, it, it might have been, yeah. I, 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 I didn't state in my research if it was a journal entry or, or a letter, but uh, I certainly... It was a letter, and I was like, damn, called them beasts right to, you know, so... Yeah, there's no room for like uh, diplomacy at uh, diplomacy at this point. You know, it's um, gotta tell her how it is. You know, what he's uh, yeah. def- what he's definitely seen. Speaking so much about the rape and stuff like that, there's actually a part, point in this movie where uh, they kind of go to they show a girl being you know, attempted to be raped, and the they show the Japanese soldiers beat her up and whatnot, and then it cuts to a photo of a, a real woman that had been beaten down, and uh, yeah, the the woman was named Li Shou Ing, and uh, actually like saw it just by chance during research and everything like that, pictures of her and stuff like that. She was essentially they did they were going to rape her, but she fought back and resisted, and they beat her just unmerciful, and then like stabbed her. I forget how many times, but I think I've seen this uh, footage. It's uh, part of the John McGee um, film footage that uh, survived, also. The reason I saw it was because there was an author, Irish Chang, yes. who uh, wrote a book on uh, Nanking Massacre, and uh, she actually traveled to China and met with the woman, and uh, she was still alive in the 2000s, as far as I could tell, and uh, yeah, still uh, smart as a whip, she said. So uh, That's the book, uh, The Rape of Nanking, Irish uh, Chang's 1997 book, um, and I'm sure in the book there uh, are these following accounts, uh, you know, members being forced to rape other family members, uh, mon- monks who are taking a vow of celibacy, being forced to rape women. That's actually a scene in Black Sun. And um, as they also found alleged uh, Chinese soldiers uh, in the thousands, they were taken to the Jiangtze uh, River and machine gunned. Um, and the biggest act of massacre of this kind um, came on uh, December 18th. It was uh, dubbed the Straw String Gorged Massacre. Uh, Japanese soldiers essentially took most of the morning uh, tying all the POWs' hands together, and in the dusk, uh, at dusk, divided them, in, or and in the dusk, divided them into four columns and opened fire at them. And obviously, un- unable to escape, uh, the POWs could uh, only scream and thrash in desperations and uh, in desperation. And it said it took an hour for the sound of death to stop, and uh, even longer for the Japanese to bay- bayonet each individual. And uh, most were dumped in, in the Yangtze River. And uh, the estimation in terms of Chinese prisoners of war is that about 57,500 were killed. Um, considering the lack of respect or humanity on display, for some reason the Japanese did respect the Nanking safety zone to an extent. Uh, there were politics involved in terms of you, you can't just enter randomly in there and do what you want. They had to abide by some slight rules, you know. And it said only a few shells straight into it. Only a few killings took place in it. Um, but they would go in there and take with them men and women to kill and rape uh, outside of the safety zone. So that's their rationale. You know, as long as we do it outside. Uh, it's so okay. 
strange. Uh, John Rabe tried to temper this, as we said, with his um, credentials with the Nazi party, but they didn't help at all, uh, really. I mean, he, he, Rabe is a hero because he still managed to keep this substantial number of Chinese hidden away from the massacre. I mean, saving about 200,000 to 250,000 people is... Uh, Save one is amazing, but so him and the committee being able to save so many is quite a heroic act. And um, so uh, it's a shame that his life ended so uh, uh, just 13, 14 years after after this um, after this event. Uh, matters calmed down in the beginning of 1938 as the Japanese officially claimed they had restored order. You know, job well done. You know, we 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 got it we now. You're, you're safe now, people. Like holy shit. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, refugees at that point were ordered out of the safety zone, and eventually no refugee camps were left, and this safety zone was closed. Um, and we won't talk much of the aftermath as such, because I want to make this recap more relevant to the film. And um, But uh, as expected, you know, for such a documented and discussed event, um, it has been depicted in books and articles and movies. And uh, I'd like to talk of some um, examples of movies and documentaries that have happened uh, uh, be before... At the same time, Mutum Face film was made, and even after some more recent examples. So, um, you have examples uh, going back to 1938, Nanking, a war propaganda film released by the Japanese government. Uh, the film was actually rediscovered in 1995 and appears to portray a peacefully occupied Nanking. But uh, the film professor Jinchi uh, Fuji has expressed doubts that the location being shown is actually Nanking and uh, I've read, heard somewhere, read somewhere that they shot some stuff at the safety zone where stuff was calm and quieter and not as chaotic or destroyed, you know and, and he has expressed doubt about the content of the film in general, you know and uh, that's what the Japanese they, did, you know they, they saw themselves as a peaceful army and they dropped flyers obviously on Nanking showing them smiling and uh, you know uh, carrying probably like kids Chinese kids like we're here now we're good it's all good and it's uh, obviously classic propaganda in that regard uh, so uh, furthermore uh, the movie Don't Cry Nanking uh, from 1995 directed by Wu Xiu Niu I think it's a mainland or Taiwanese production is a historical fiction centering uh, fictional account centering around a Chinese doctor his Japanese wife and their children as they experience the siege, fall, and massacre of Nanking. Uh, I've seen it. It's uh, John Wu co-produced it, I remember. And it's a fairly effective, well-mounted movie that is worth a look, very uh, professional. Uh, this um, was a movie that uh, Mutun Fei, I don't think, speaks very highly of. It's um, uh, He registered his movie first in the mainland. This is my title. I'm making this movie. But the mainland uh, government, censors, wanted to favor this bigger movie. Don't Cry Nanking was their... Like, uh, we like this better. We like this to be more widespread and promoted. And they banned the Black Sun, the Nanking Massacre, because Mutunfei refused to change his title. He stood his ground. Like, I'm, I registered first, so I'm not changing it. Yeah. And uh, therefore, his movie is banned, I think, to this day in China. And um, that would, they got a Hong Kong release, but um, um, obviously um, still somewhat unseen um, uh, overall. But uh, yeah, uh, I respect Mutung Fei for standing his ground. Uh, like, uh, no, no. And, and to be fair, Joshua, his movie is better. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's not bad. Don't cry, Nan King. I'm not uh, the filmmakers. I don't blame uh, Wu uh, Xi New, but um, I blame. Uh, administration. Furthermore, I have, uh, I have a few examples here, Re recommendations really, so um, we'll uh, go through them one by one. Uh, City of Life and Death from 2009, the mainland movie directed by Liu Chan. Uh, 
uh, is a dramatization of the Nanking Massacre, and uh, I reviewed it recently. I, it's an excellent movie. It depicts, again, the rampage and murder and rape uh, of the, the Japanese army did uh, during the Nanking Massacre. And uh, Lu Chan is the director of another acclaimed movie. I think it was his debut movie. Um, so I'm wondering if you've seen it, Joshua. Kekishili, Mountain Patrol, about uh, poachers in Tibet. No, I have not. Recommend it highly. As, uh, Columbia, Tricer and Sony have it um, uh, distributed uh, wi- worldwide. So it's a very available movie. I've heard such good things about City of Life and Death. It is very, very good. I mean, it's a very unplotted approach as well to this one because we get uh, like nightmarish glimpses from both sides, Chinese and Japanese. It's a very balanced movie in that regard. It's shot in uh, grainy black and white. Uh, it's a very good choice. And uh, it establishes character on each respective um uh, side, but the uh, Luchan script covers uh, l- the least amount of time it's spent on the Chinese army side. You know, we get uh, mainland star Liu Ye as uh, one of the main uh, characters in, in the like depleted Chinese army, but he's not really in the movie a whole lot. Uh, John Robbie uh, appears uh, for a few minutes in the film, played by John Paisley. Yes, we see him obviously trying to protect the soldiers and the women in the Nanking safety zone. Uh, and uh, obviously the movie pulls no punches either. You know, this, that systematic and cruel rape and murder by the Japanese is very much uh, in uh, in this movie as well, without it being, uh, you know, an exploitation movie. Obviously this is a big, classy movie, but they obviously can show and they will show a lot of stuff. Uh, but the uh, we get a Jap- very welcome Japanese perspective uh, through the soldier, this conscience ridden soldier, you know, called Kadokawa, played by, uh, excellently by an actor I'm not familiar with, called Hideo Nakaizumi, which might, might be the most famous actor in Japan, but I don't know of this gentleman, I'm sorry. You know, a fairly young guy, Hideo uh, Nakaizumi. And obviously through his eyes, director Lu Chan establishes this pull-no-punches attitude um, um, as he witnesses this very realistically tinted uh, violence, you know, uh, it turns his stomach and it turns our stomachs as well, you know, and there's no cheap exploitation tactics here, and um, but it's very terrifying, and I recommend it highly. If if you're in the US, and maybe it's on uh, it is on Netflix there, and maybe it's on Netflix uh, worldwide, I recommend it very, very highly. Uh, the Flowers of War, from 2011, directed by Zhang Yimou and starring Christian Bale, uh, based on the book The 13th Women of Nanjing by uh, Geling Yan. It's, uh, in, in all accounts, um, by all accounts, a fictional story within the real pages of history. Uh, Zhang Yimou, obviously the director of Hero, uh, House of Blind Daggers, uh, Not One Less, and um, Race to Red Lantern, and what have you. Uh, it's, uh, it keeps a decent grip. Uh, it's somewhat distant initially on us, uh, because Christian Bale's like, mortician character is, um, you know, ultimately he tries to save this group of women and uh, children from the Japanese, uh, uh, and they hide out in a church, uh, uh, Red Cross-sanctioned church. It is a bit simplified because uh, Christian Bale is he's a mortician and he only wants money initially. And then, then he changes, and it's kind of, uh, it's a bit sloppy the way he changes, but he is um, very good, and uh, as the movie goes on, you know, it, it's, um, it really... Um, you warm up to it uh, quite a bit. There is some war imagery and harrowing imagery at points, uh, but the the version I saw on Netflix is the international version that cuts out a good chunk of these war scenes. For international purposes, they actually made the choice of cutting down on some of that stuff and focusing on the drama only. It's not censorship. It's actually the um, it's a conscious editing choice for international purposes. 
and it, it works better for that movie. It makes it more relatable when it's so contained. It's mostly set in this church and uh, this Zhang Yimo, I don't know how you feel about his movie movies, Joshua, but I like his smaller, lesser, like bigger in scope type of movies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and not one less is obviously this um, movie about a uh, school, uh, um, a school in a like poor village, and their their new teacher is like twelve years old. You know, the, you know this girl that's brought in, you know, because the other teacher, the adult teacher's uh, going away for some reason. Really touching stuff and uh, getting a lot of natural performances out of the kids. But I recommend The Flowers Award. It grows on you and the acting is solid, even strong across the board. I mean, Christian Bale, I he never puts in really a bad performance in my book. You know, he's always no. solid, even if all movies of his uh, I don't go out and see. I mean, I've never seen Terminate Salvation and I'll probably never go into because it doesn't interest me. You're good. Don't worry about that one. Uh, uh, he's he's got excellent chemistry with the Chinese actress uh, Ni Ni. You know their chemistry in particular standing out. And it's a mixed language movie uh, in a natural way because uh, these children in the church they've been taught English by the priest that has uh, died prior, so they're educated at the church. Uh, two more choices: uh, the documentary Nanking from 2007, uh, produced by HBO, and it marked uh, 2007 marked 70 years since the massacre. It features accounts of atrocities by um, survivors, Chinese survivors. Uh, but as a central device, it features a staged reading of the journals and letters and diaries featuring actors such as Mariel Hemingway, Woody Harrelson, Stephen Dorff, and uh, Jürgen Prochnow. Uh, Jürgen Prochnow therefore plays uh, John Rabe in this staged reading. Very touching, very heartbreaking. Uh, and I worried about that central device initially. It felt pretentious. But the thing is, the real words from the journals and the letters that they quote them, you know, they perform them, but they are verbatim. It became becomes quite a haunting experience seeing these actors obviously just speak into camera. They don't. They just. It's very simple uh, set up that way. Yeah. Um, uh, Prochnow plays John Robbie, as I said. Harrelson plays uh, Dr. Robert Wilson, uh, which was this uh, surgeon at the. Uh, at the international, um, uh, who was in the international committee and uh, in the safety zone as well. Uh, Mariel Hemingway plays Minnie Vautrin, this American missionary renowned for saving the, the lives of many uh, at the Ginling Girls College during the Nanking Massacre. Furthermore, uh, obviously we mentioned the rape of Nanking, Iris Chang's um, acclaimed book. Uh, it ba- it's based on many journal entries from John Rabe, and at the time was met with just as anything concerning the Nanking Massacre was met with acclaim and criticism, claiming misinformation and flaws within the pages, but not just from the Japanese side necessarily. Uh, so maybe there was some interesting discussion, um, or maybe it was just like the example you know we had earlier in the show. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, fuck you, no, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> it never happened. It kind of happened, but some of it didn't. Only 40,000 died. So, so there, you know, I'm, just, I'm right. I'm glad now I'm right. You know. <laughs> and finally, just because I finished it this morning, uh, John Rabe, literally a movie called John Rabe from 2009, which is a French-German-Chinese co-production. It's based on this book called The Good Man of Nanking, which is a collection of pers- personal journeys uh, of uh, John Rabe. And... Um, Obviously, again, we're talking of the topic, and it always sparks heartache and feelings of being like disheartened and horrified. And uh, I recommend the movie, even though it's a it's a three star movie. If um, you know, it's solid. Therefore, it's a well produced, not overly graphic account of 
Arabe's struggle to protect as many men and women as he could, you know, as well as Chinese soldiers. And uh, Arabe is played by a German actor Ulrich Tukur. And uh, Steve Buscemi plays American surgeon Robert Wilson. He got in on uh, this co-production action. And uh, it it's, feels like a very honorable portrayal of someone who, um, you know, had Nazi credentials but used them humanely, you know, to protect uh, protect from inhumane ways, you know. This is on US Netflix. Uh, uh, if you try to look it up in the UK, there's a retitle and um, a horrible one at that. Uh, John Rabe became in the UK City of War, the story of John Rabe, with this poster art with a big plane and a big Nazi flag that. and explosions and this epic war field that isn't fair to the film at all. We're breaking down the Nazis. You know, war. <laughs> you know, it's it's not a commercial movie as such, you know, that you gotta sell to kids. So I think it's a, that, that was a mistake and half on the, uh, by someone. So, <laughs> but I recommend it to John Robert. So that was the history part. Let's do the movie part. We're now going to discuss and review Black Sun and Nanking Massacre from Mutun Fei. And first of all, Joshua, I'd like a brief opinion from you on the film. Hmm. A laugh riot. <laughs> a laugh riot. The funniest movie of the decade. Um, I would probably, you know, I would say it's potentially uh, his, his magnum opus, possibly. It's the film that he's been building to, I think. You know, between this and uh, Men Behind the Sun, I think this is the more mature film, and I think that uh, it definitely covers the material, and you know, while keeping that same free-flowing type of you know, from one thing to the next attitude that the first film that uh, Men Behind the Sun had, but is uh, just much. It's development. That's what you're saying, essentially. Yeah, but saying. I'm saying just I don't want to say easier to watch because it too has a lot of that same type of nasty stuff in it. But uh, it's pretty relentless without being as gory. But right, it's, um, I think so. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Um, and I agree. It's an excellent, well-made account. Um, you know, mm-hmm. made with the utmost attention to um, you know providing a like this fair portrayal in, uh, you know, including, you know, in your face, heinous acts and meaning this is a gory movie. Uh, But this is not exploitation done by some hack or some teenage boys wishing to shock and stir up trouble, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, It furthers Mutum Fei's train of thought, you know, skill and heart when it comes to this subject, because this is clearly the subject, if you look at his filmography, that um, where he blossomed as a filmmaker, despite this being a very difficult subject. So that's uh, the, that's my brief opinion, and it's nice to see a war crime movie with some thought and distinction uh, again compared to how Men Behind the Sun two and three fared, you know, and looked and felt. Uh, it, it's really cool because you see, it, it's it's the simple thing of oh that that's not a skilled filmmaker, this is a skilled filmmaker, you know, yeah. meaning what he does and not just catching in on on heinous shit, you know, look at us, look at what we did, shock you, shock you, we're gonna shock you now. No, he uh, he does, but he's not out for uh, for that sh- easy shock value, which yeah. can be shameless fun, but uh, uh, Men Behind the Sun 2 and 3 definitely just, um, we reconfirm the fact, viewing this movie, how weak they were, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the documentary recap I really like, it sets the stage for how Mutum Fae's style throughout this movie, mixing documentary and the state, his own stage footage, um, kind of will the role, you know. That 8mm footage, um, I both, uh, you know, 
stuff at war or um, you know stuff shot at the city. Just the eerie stuff, man. Just the eerie stuff, and and it might be sixty millimeter, but whatever. It's uh, archival footage, uh, you know. Right. There are moments in the film where we cut from like uh, the staged recreations to actual photographs and stuff like that. that yeah. Were pretty amazing. Pretty like the, haunting as well. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the shot of the Buddhist monk. Uh, you know, praying while a Japanese soldier behind him uh, takes out his sword and is preparing to strike or whatever. I think he shoots that, him in that photograph. Shoot, yeah, it's, uh, shoots yeah, him in the back of the head. Yeah, that that one was uh, very well well done. You know and, what I'm saying? And, and that's the thing here. Any doubt that this was a dirty, grimy production just out to shoot some fucked up shit is yeah. squashed pretty nicely by... Uh, we that thorough recap and then cut to very beautiful cinematography in the, Bo- in the Buddhist monk temple. Mm-hmm. You know, a very nice camera work, and you see these uh, Buddhist monks praying for peace uh, during these uh, turbulent times. You know, and I love the line, and I think uh, Mutun Fei actually wrote the script where one of the younger monks asks uh, one of the elders, "Aren't Japanese Buddhists?" Yeah, and he replies, "It's not the same." Yeah. And it isn't. I mean, and in the movie they claim like we're doing this for Buddha, we're Buddhists, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, you know it won't apply here. Their type of uh, train of thought in terms of Buddhism, you know. Yeah, I had that same quote wrote down. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a pretty, it, it's a simple line, but uh, it sets the stage pretty well. And uh, and uh, you know, as a production, uh, what do you think? Uh, this um, g- give listeners an idea. Is this uh, like? Uh, Compared to Men Behind the Sun, how does this production phase? Is it a bigger production or much? It looks much bigger. I don't know, you know, what the actual, you know, budgetary, you know, restraints were for it. But uh, you know, whereas Men Behind the Sun was uh, felt much more localized to like one place, this feels like you're seeing much more of the Chinese countryside. Kind of, there's like a lot more green shown at different points in the film, especially during the early part. And then later, there are, like, shots where, you know, it, it looks like they have hundreds of people playing, you know, basically playing corpses along the sides of the road. And the frame is really deep as well, if you notice. Right. So, like, without doing, a, like, a big 235 scope frame, he has, like, foreground elements of hundreds of extras walking and... Um, uh, oh, rather, background. And then stuff in the foreground. Just a very deep and impressive-looking frame. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he's not afraid to push either. Um, <laughs> I wonder, that poor baby that they placed amidst a pile of uh, uh, fake corpses or just yeah. actors laying, laying still. I hope that poor baby fared well later in life <laughs> because it's crying and seeing, you know, uh, someone playing dead who's got blood all, all over her face and therefore, you know, obviously in the movie it's supposed to be her mother probably. Uh, and it's, There's uh, so much damaged children in this movie. Yeah, I mean that could be argued to be exploitation, but I, you know, you never, you don't know that baby might not. I remember, I remember Dick about uh, being appearing in that movie anyway. You know, uh, right. so, um, but uh, it's, uh, it's 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 certainly it's effective for the movie though. You mm-hmm. know, uh, but but you might argue against the fact that you didn't need to do that Mutant fate. Maybe not, but it is effective for the movie to place uh, this baby, crime crime baby in the midst of carnage, fake carnage. Um, but uh, Every time I hear anything about Japanese war atrocities, though, I swear it's always something to do with kids being murdered. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, even, like, down to, like, the Bataan Death March where, like, uh, you know, American GIs and stuff like that were made to walk, you know, and basically 
you know, to their death or what have you, to this camp. And, like, you'd hear stories about, you know, mothers and with their children on the side of the road trying to bring, you know, a piece of bread out to the American GIs who were, you know, walking or whatever. And then having the mother being killed and the baby bayoneted and, uh. you know, put up on there and, like, you know, walking with a dead baby on her bayonet, you know, things like that. I was surprised that famous footage, uh, photograph wasn't in this movie, though, um, of a baby being uh, being bayoneted. Uh, the, it actually appears in Hong Kong 1941, the Hong Kong movie with uh, Chai Yun-fat. Uh, Cecilia Yip sees a um, newspaper with that footage mm-hmm. on it, and they cut briefly uh, to that photograph on that newspaper, and it's a pretty shocking image. Uh, it's a, it, it raises like the uh, baby in the air. And it's a uh, spear on the. Uh, I think that was in. Uh, the, I think that was in Bataan now. Right, right. Not 100 percent though. Okay, okay, yeah. I just remember it's like, the, oh dear lord, that didn't look staged, you know, when I saw Hong Kong yeah. 1941, and I think it's confirmed that's a real photograph. Yeah. Uh, and they, I mean, God, God damn it, they probably sat there and like do some fucked up shit, and I'll shoot it. You know, uh, you know, they had some like local journalists there, Japanese journalists there, to like, oh, we gotta document uh, your great uh, war efforts. Do that. <laughs> uh, but the thing is that uh, it could have gone so wrong that mix of uh, cutting to photographs, cutting cutting to documentary footage, and back to his uh, stage stuff, or you say his stage stuff before. It could have been this desperate uh, attention-seeking move. But uh, the thick Mouton Faye pulls it off by mixing the uh, his stage stuff with cuts to grainy black and white footage or photographs. Absolutely. I think it uh, provides a depth to the film that uh, otherwise you don't get. And it just, it's pretty, it's not only just really stylish or whatever. I think that it adds to the, like, uh, authenticity of the film. And it's important for a film that's kind of trying to go for, like, a semi-documentary uh, style at points, you know? Exactly. I firmly agree. But really... It hammered it home, and it needed to be hammered home. It's not hammered home uh, one time too many by doing that. Uh, not at all. I thought it was very immersive and uh, tough to watch. Uh, and uh, what is also tough to watch is uh, to hear the dialogue uh, between the Japanese, uh, their beliefs in terms of what they're doing and how they're doing it, uh, that they mm-hmm. seem to believe in this, that they're doing what they're doing in a tight, complex, controlled manner. This campaign is very detailed and is clean up and taken over of the city is very well thought out and we're doing the right thing. But it's ruthless. It's ruthless regulation uh, and they even say like anyone who opens their doors too slowly kill them. Anyone with short short hair kill them. Every woman is a comfort woman to be raped so uh, so just can get relief because they're stressed. They're stressed. You know, and it's you, tough, man. You know, you, you I mean, just go wow, and it's not exaggerated for the movie one bit. I think it's uh, it's their rationale, you know, on the streets like that. This is what we do. Uh, go for it, guys. You know, this these are the rules. Go for it. Um, and it's very welcome. This look into the daily lives of the Chinese people, how they abide by these rules to survive by showing their hands because they can't walk with their hands in their pockets either. So showing their hands and like. Uh, uh, listening to the Japanese and bowing to the Japanese and uh, trying to survive in any way they can by just playing along and even that is not helpful, you know. Yeah, there's that point in the movie where they're uh, they're bringing people out and basically I guess just picking who's going to live and die and like one guy gets out and he's like, I'm a uh, 
I'm a clerk. I'm a shopping clerk or whatever. And he's like, oh, good, cl- uh, clerks, that's who we're looking for, and blah, blah, blah. Like, they're going to kill him. And he's like, no, no, I'm a teacher. Oh, yeah, we're going to try to kill teachers, too. And they just, you know, end up gunning him down. This, this callous nature is so effective and uh, rarely super gory compared to Man by no. the Sun. There's certainly no, uh, like... Um, There's gunshots without squibs. It is, it is okay, and, uh, but, but it works uh, just as much. And so uh, he, he, that was probably a conscious choice, I would imagine, because they have a gore budget uh, or special right. effects budget. Um, and uh, you're very right. I mean, uh, when you say that uh, the gunshots uh, without scripts, I'm thinking of scenes where you see the aftermath of these mass executions. And uh, I made a note uh, that says the following. It may sound simple, but set and production design, like walls splattered with blood, walls that are, are aged or either picked because they look aged, and having executed victims spread alongside it in period wear and having blood all over them, that site is not something that is easy to pull off. You know, you got to give them props for, like, getting these details so right, especially such a simple thing like, it sounds simple, like uh, blood splattered on the wall. I think you got to get, get that right. Uh, if, because it can look, you, you can't just, like, throw the bucket on the wall and uh, think that's that. I think they need to almost do it artistically for it to look real, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's an art to it. Yeah, I haven't thrown stuff on walls just to see how it sticks and how it looks. Does that look like people were shot against that wall? No, it just looked like someone threw shit on the wall. <laughs> you know, it might be it might be very tough to do that. And I give such props to the production for getting the feel right. And uh, they probably shot at these uh, rough-looking um, surroundings anyway, with uh, maybe uh, houses that weren't, um, you know, complete or maybe they were falling apart. But it's... Mouton really puts us there, I think. It's an, uh, really immersive on that uh, level, too. Uh, so there, there, there's, like, no but, like signs of a, of a budget where it becomes really low budget, where it becomes really embarrassing to watch the production. You know what I mean? Even though we, we say that there's little blood in it and stuff like that, there are a couple of scenes in it. The, the fetus scene would probably be... Yeah, it's the most quoted, and certainly it's on cover art uh, on DVDs and what have you. Uh, do explain. I mean, not a whole lot to explain. Essentially, just the Japanese come across a pregnant woman who tries to fight back, and as you might expect in a any kind of good piece of exploitation, uh, she is bayoneted, and uh, her fetus is essentially ripped from you know her stomach cavity and lifted up into the air. And it's still full connected. View. Full view. Yeah, full view. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's still connected by umbilical cord. It's you know, very nasty, very grotesque. I always thought when I saw stills of it that it looked kind of goofy, but in motion, it really is effective. Yeah. Um, and it's a uh, if there's any main characters, it's this family that there's a main character because the dad of the wife or the husband of the wife rather. Uh, we see him throughout the movie and obviously in this see he witnesses this so it's obviously mm-hmm. Scott and we see him throughout the movie a little bit here and there uh, but but uh, otherwise there's not m- many main characters but this family it kind of become it, the full circle of this family becomes evident at the end of the movie because they're yeah they're completely destroyed essentially um, including uh, the grandmother mother is this catatonic shell at the end of the movie so uh, it keeps sort of focus on them but not uh, in a way where you can plot out uh, say that this movie is plotted out and it doesn't need to be uh, Mouton Faye is relentless but it's um, maybe that's a question for you did you think that 
okay, enough's enough, we get it, or do you think his relentlessness is uh, valid and fair? No, I think it's valid. I mean, you go through the film and it is really just one just horrible thing from the you know one from the next, but it, I mean that is that's what you signed on for. You know what I'm saying? I mean that you know before going into the movie kind of that essentially this was just a really terrible time in history, and that's what you're gonna get a glimpse of. You know you can't really you know Mutafe doesn't give you the option of like even thinking of any other way about it. You know it's like this is what happened. This is what you're gonna get. You know, mm, absolutely agree. And I mean, I'm sure um, teenage gorehounds sought out this movie. Like, yeah, it looks fucked up. I, I think they'd be disappointed to be honest, because there's not a whole lot of gore in it. I've heard like uh, views like, yeah, it's not as gory as Men Behind the Sun. Like, oh boy, you don't get it. <laughs> mm. uh, and it's not as gory as Men Behind the Sun, but uh, boys are better. Boys are yeah. better. The writing is a lot better. And um, I want to check what your notes are, were on the very, maybe my favorite scene in the movie between one, the, one of the commanding uh, generals or commander of the army. His uh, uh, table verbal conflict between himself and a samurai that arrives at the, uh, at the site. Maybe a fictional samurai, but for writing purposes, this is one of the key scenes in the movie. So what are your notes on that uh, verbal conflict? It's actually, I mean, it's very well written, the sequence. And, uh, you know, I mean, I did try to look up a samurai, try to find out if he was a real person from history or what have you, but I couldn't really find anything. But it's almost as if, you know, as, as much as like the uh, the Japanese characters in the film constantly talk about, you know, old China versus the the Chinese that they're currently like, because there's this thing with the Japanese military. It seems as if they have this, they have like the utmost respect for the Chinese generals and stuff from history, but they have no respect for current Chinese. And it's as if in this film, you know, as if in this sequence, you have this samurai who represents older Japan talking to a general from modern Japan. And uh, the samurai, of course, just has no respect for what the you know Japanese general is doing. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot in it about, you know, swordsmanship and crafting of a sword and, like, you know, the modern general is all about, you know, a sword being sharp and being used for killing and whatnot, where the, you know, elder Japanese samurais is like, well, it's not about being sharp. It's about, you know, the craftsman putting his heart and soul into it and, you know, basically just... A, an artist or like putting in skill and things like that and the two just they clash in all regards and the scene culminates with the Japanese general uh, which I forget who it was but he basically he wants to impress the samurai and like he likes to test his swords on Chinese uh, civilians and basically ex executing them by chopping off their heads in the backyard or what have you and uh Ultimately, Samurai just walks off from him, you know, and just walks away disgusted and disappointed. It's a really good scene because they sit at the opposite ends of a very long table, mm -hmm. and Mutun Fei continually moves his camera in very slowly, so the more intense the verbal conflict gets, the tighter where the camera is on uh, the characters' faces, which I thought was a very simple and effective way. And and uh, it's 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 an excellent written scene because they talk of, okay, uh, he respects that they want to, that the Japanese Empire wants to, uh, you know, be spread, and we, that he respects that. He has no 
he has beliefs in that Japan should further itself. But they, they mentioned this very key line of uh, long-term goals versus short-term, short-term goals. goals yeah. uh, so what they're doing is just short-term goals, and it's certainly not winning the hearts of anyone, despite them trying to ra- bring the rationale that, oh, oh no, we are. We we are bringing we are winning their hearts over because otherwise if we hadn't done this, they would have been fucked, and and he can't get through to the general yeah. that way. He tries and they they try to have this respectful respectful conversation between each other for a good five minutes. It's uh, nice to have that quite quite scene in the middle of this. It it doesn't work. That, that's why he works walks off. You know he doesn't look at it constructively. He just looks at it violently, and that's why. Yeah. There's no use here. They're, I'm old Japan. They are new Japan, and I, I, I'd imagine that character could be a bit lost after that. You mm-hmm. know, seeing that this is what we've turned into. This uh, this is what the sword has turned into. The meaning of the sword has turned into, and uh, the the samurai way obviously is um, sure, in history lost, and it should have been fading at that point anyway. Uh, which is a, a sad thing and welcome thing for the movie to have uh, again some character given to uh, the Japanese side and some character given to the writing, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, 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 I respect and admire that so much. I was really blown away by the, uh, by the writing. It's very um, no, non-cliched and very um, spot on. And, and I think very, uh, in, it's easy to interpret too because they speak in symbolism, but it's very easy to interpret what they are speaking of. It's very mature, you know. It's very mature, definitely, definitely. And, and I mean, it, 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 that's the thing compared to Men Behind the Sun. I'm not saying their their choices were immature, but this movie doesn't have, you know, uh, you know, questionable ethical choices like uh, having a real corpse that's being operated on and what have you. They, they, mm-hmm. they, this is an actual production, you know. It might have been small and under the radar and under fr- on the fringe. Certainly no big actors in this one. But uh, it is a real production. It is a real movie, and it's to be respected as a real movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I think it's this scene, but or maybe another beheading scene, where we cut to one of the most haunting uh, photos of an actual beheading. You know, uh, We don't see Mutum face beheading on screen, I think. I think when the cut happens, we cut to this uh, black-and-white footage of... Um, uh, uh, Chinese being beheaded. And you can almost, it almost looks like it's, the head is not f- completely left the neck, that there's like yeah. skin still, uh, still, uh, yeah, still holding it on. So, I mean, that's, uh, one of the most haunting ph- photography, uh, photographs, and it's available, it's survived, you know, and it's, um, it's needed, it's needed to be out yeah. there. And, uh, it's not for shock exploitation effect, a cheap shock exploitation effect here. Um, rather, the, the, again, it's not a constant, gore factor within this movie but rather that it gets to you because the depiction of the time uh, is so well done and the ruthlessness is so um, intense uh, that's what gets to me mainly uh, not, uh, as horrible as the fetus scene is uh, some of the stuff in the latter stages of the movie because the intense ruthlessness uh, that's what gets to you you know when uh, mm-hmm. when everyone is fair game as we said you know elderly infants uh, monks uh, you know Buddhist monks even characters who we think are going to be uh, kind of main protagonists or what have you. You know, even our characters aren't necessary to stay around the whole time. No, no. It's not a warm story of survival, this. Uh, this both, no. Despite focusing on a family, it, it isn't a warm story. And um, again, Mutum Fei is not angry for the sake of being angry. It's, uh, it's, um, it's a needed glimpse into what it could have been like, you know. 
Uh, and I admire that balance, you know, because the anger could become too much in movies as well. Uh, I think it can cross a line where it's like, okay, you can, we know, you know, tone it down. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but so, but he let, he lets it loose for a, for a mere ninety minutes, and I think uh, I, there's barely any break in this movie aside from that verbal scene, if you will. But it just gave gave me the impression that it's uh, it's ninety minutes of hell. And uh, very well portrayed 90 minutes of hell. I mean, the, the relief we get is kind of at the end, and I'll, it's not a spoiler, but I'll, I'll get to it. But maybe the biggest piece of production design and biggest scene in the production is the uh, burning of the corpses at what's possibly in the movie, the young Sir River. Uh, what did you think of that? That was big, man. That was and big and real. They, they set fire to a lot of dummy, dummy bodies in that one. I know, right. That's, that's the one sequence I think of. The most ones like about how big this movie is in comparison to like uh, Men Behind the Sun. It's uh, like I said, that was the scene I was talking about where it seems like they have hundreds of extras and whatnot yeah. playing dead bodies and what you know because there's scenes where you can tell it's obviously real people on the side of that uh, road or what have you. Yeah, and and then the big obviously distant shot. This uh, a lot yeah. of dummies. I mean, a lot of them. I mean, for, oh, it, it, you gotta make this stuff. You gotta costume something for to make it look right. like dummies in a helicopter shot or a wide shot. You know what I mean? And it the way that fire just that wildfire just goes on for miles. It seems like when they light the fuse, you know, and uh, the gasoline obviously ignites. Wow, and uh, yeah. I, I know Mutum Face said that uh, we had a bit of a problem putting that out. You know, it wasn't easy to put out, and, but but they did. Obviously, nothing uh, spread, and uh, it probably was a controlled scene in terms of. I hope they had a fire marshal of some kind on set. You know, a fire mm-hmm. truck standing by. You know what I mean? Uh, because we know Hong Kong productions and mainland productions can be, you know, a bit of a free for all. Like, yeah, we, we'll set Chiang Fat on fire, no worries. You know, and he said yes, so whatever. I think they needed to have some control going on here because, uh, but whoops, we burned down a building block. You know, it, it's a, it, you, you can't have that. So, uh, so, so that shows, uh, I think, Mutofei is obviously a professional uh, through, uh, throughout. So. And, and my final note is, uh, you know, the movie calms down and it ends on um, Christmas Eve. Very heartbreaking uh, scene where we see um, different sides celebrate Christmas uh, differently. Right. Uh, the uh, refugees and the uh, people in the safety zone, they pray for peace while they sing Silent Night. The Japanese uh, celebrate. They're good and happy and they drunkenly sing Silent Night together. They're happy yeah. about their efforts. It's going well. Uh, and we even get Silent Night sung over the documentary images, which is um, really heartbreaking. Really, yeah. Dark. Uh, but uh, again... If you only knew Mutum Faith from Men Behind the Sun in 4 and 40 was kind of this gritty, grimy, dirty, and maybe ethically ill filmmaker. Yeah. Black Sun will surprise you. It's, um, and it's a shame, uh, um, he hasn't been able to do a movie since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still trying to get there. I, mean, I don't know if he's still trying. I think he's still alive. Uh, but he wants to, you know, make that No More War. I think the proposed name was for his final, like, um, movie in this war crime trilogy focusing on kids in the aftermath of uh, Nanking, I believe. And I mean aftermath in terms of when the Japanese uh, kind of called it uh, quits on the massacre, if you will. Um, so really, uh, really bad on my notes. I can't recommend it highly enough. You, strong stomach, obviously, required. Right. But um, it's, would you say it's an easier movie 
for most people to watch compared to Man Behind the Sun? Would it would have been an easier sell for uh, your friends to sit down in front of this? Do you think? Compared to, I think so. I mean, um, it's you know you don't have to worry about a cadaver scene or any kind of animal. Uh, no, things, you know, <laughs> well, no rats on fire in this one. No I... rats on fire in this one. And if you can, and or, or cats, you know, no scenes like that. But uh, yeah, so that makes this one much easier to get into and whatnot. But you know, it is a it's a dark movie. You know, it's a dark time in history. You know, so obviously it's you know supposed to be, but. I think that uh, if you're in the mood for it or whatever, or if you can handle it, it's definitely you know something you should see. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a it's respect, it's a demands respect, uh, yeah. and uh, not in the in the for the violence, uh, even though it features a whole lot of it. Yeah. So as for availability, uh, there, there there's a few options still out there. Uh, Unearthed Films did a very good US DVD with a fine transfer and extras uh, like uh, archival footage and uh, films and what have you. I haven't seen it, though. I didn't have time to look at those extras. That DVD looks to be in print still, and uh, it's in Mandarin and English subtitle. They obviously, this movie really didn't call for a dub, to be honest. Uh, Men Behind the Sun could be argued like, yeah, I'd watch that with a dub. That, that could be kind of interesting. Uh, I, w- I, I didn't miss having this uh, dubbed, to be honest. Tartan UK did uh, one as well, an out-of-print release now, but um, they, uh, the BBFC passed uh, Black Sun Uncut, and um, hopefully that was due to the BBFC seeing this as an important movie. Uh, the Tartan UK DVD does feature, you know, a, a pretty graphic view of the fetus scene as its cover, which I think uh, I'm not entirely sure of if that's a wise decision or not. Because uh, yeah, you want people to pick up the DVD, but I think that just lures in the gore hounds for the wrong reasons, you know. Uh, enough films did a more like toned down cover, uh, even though it features a photograph of uh, someone presumably about to be beheaded, but it's not like this photograph mid-violent act, you know, staged yeah. staged or not. And so, um, but, but it's only a cover, obviously, but it's, uh, it's an interesting difference, if you will. Uh, in Hong Kong, Maya handled distribution rights on VHS, VCD, and Laserdisc. Uh, this had some brief footage missing, um, specifically a, a few seconds from the uh, baby extraction scene. It's actually missing, but uh, a lot of it is, is intact. And the photograph of the discussed uh, beheading that we talked of, that is actually cut. Uh, it was obviously rated category three, but they uh, they objected to some stuff in there. So, but um, uh, you know, I, I would think more parts from the fetus scene would have been taken out. But no, they uh, like this shot of the woman from the front as the fetus kind of gets taken out. That's out, but like the f- shot from the side where you see the Japanese soldier with the fetus like impaled on his bayonet, mm-hmm. bayonet. That is in there, so they didn't they, they didn't object to that, but some some stuff in there. So, hmm. uh, but unearthed films, uh, 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 both used and uh, new, uh, is still in print according to Amazon.com. So, go get it if you're interested. Okay, Joshua, <sighs> we're done <laughs> with the wartime. Oh my God, that's wartime over. wartime atrocity fucking. <laughs> it's done. It's so, done. So next time, let's talk some fucking wacky fun again after this. Oh. You know, it's been good. It's creatively fulfilling. This dip into seriousness, but uh, you know, it's time to have some fun again. And uh, while we're looking at classic works, next time they are a relief compared to what we have been doing here. So next time we go into the Shaw Brothers' vaults and look for, you know, sleaze and erotica and revenge, and therefore we land on the classic Chuyan 
so you know it's also a sword play movie intimate confessions of a chinese courtesan which is a big big classic by the classic director chu yan uh, who's uh, the villain in police story he turned uh, he turned into acting in the 80s as well so uh, and also in the second half of that episode we are going to look at his own directed 80s remake at shaw brothers of that very film called lust for love of a chinese courtesan which could, could be an interesting uh, t- look at. I, I, can, I can say this i like the older better but the new one not too bad. Not too bad. I mean, it would have been worse if they made it like independently at some crap studio with no money. But uh, it was a Shaw Brothers movie, 1983 or 1984. So uh, uh, right at the tail end of the Shaw Brothers uh, cycle, if you will. Uh, so that's that. Uh, brief contact information again. And then we're done for the Black Sun Nanking Massacre episode. This has been This Week in Sleaze. We are on podcastonfire.com along with all the other shows and bonus episodes. If you like the show, uh, email us uh, and uh, tell us that. Even if you dislike it, tell us what you dislike uh, in a rational manner rather than like, fuck you! Oh, oh, fuck you! Nanking <laughs> Massacre didn't happen. Uh, yeah, we, we don't need any of that. We don't have so. We that stuff out, Stu, before you send it to me, because he usually write, reads that email. <laughs> so, uh, podcast on fire at googlemail.com. Join us over at Facebook, like our page, facebook.com forward slash POF network. Join the discussion group, uh, type in podcast on fire network in the Facebook search box or follow the link. Twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. My writing, so good reviews.com. My video reviewing, uh, video.com and my tweets, twitter.com forward slash so good reviews. We are on iTunes and uh, rate and subscribe us and subscribe to us. And uh, if you like us, please leave a little written comment on iTunes. That would very much be appreciated. That can also be done on Stitcher, by the way. I always keep forgetting that they have a little review or comment field on Stitcher. So when you stream the show uh, for your application or online, you can leave comments. Uh, Stitcher is available to your iPhone, iPad or Android. And once you're in, type in. This week in Sleaze and find us that way and add us to your favorites if you like us. Shelflifeclothing.com for all your cool t-shirt needs. And uh, Joshua, where do they find, uh, if they have cool, cool, if they have needs, where can they turn? <laughs> where, what, what kind of needs, what kind of service do you present people with needs? <laughs> well, I have a pornography website that... Uh, I do too, I do too. It's called SoGoodReviews.com. <laughs> Go to SoGoodReviews.com. Uh, VariedCelluloid.net, and uh, you can find my other podcast, The Trashy Trio. At, Which uh, is also a pornography podcast. Also, also, yeah. Yeah, but it's done in auditorial form. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like to see pictures or whatnot, you can just listen to our sultry voices describing just terrible things. Including hardcore pornography. Absolutely. <laughs> Cafe Flesh. Yes, sir. A lot of fun. It's not only this week in Sleaze that does uh, hardcore pornography. That's uh, more, more stuff. Yeah. And obviously, there's hardcore pornography all over the place, but your choice of Cafe Flesh is more special. It's not a random porn movie you picked. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's an unattractive porn movie. <laughs> it's not sexy at all. I like the title, though, Cafe Flesh. Very, it's not yeah. like uh, it's not like stuff like French Connection with free access. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's more like Cafe Flesh. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, I'd go there. Popeye Doyle getting it on. <laughs> I know. I think there is one. I've seen. I can swear I've seen that title somewhere. Like French Connection with Free Exes. Free Exes. That's amazing. And it might be the shittiest like shot on video in two rooms kind of porn, ra- rather than like this uh, recreation of uh, <laughs> you know, it's Cockeye Doyle. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been jacking your dick in Poughkeepsie? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this thing. These things writes itself sometimes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
and I'm sure they've done cockeyed oil uh, since ten uh, times in the seventies already. You know. <laughs> but there we go. We are done. Let's stop the war crime atrocities fucking here. And there. Uh, next time, it's uh, all the good, funny games at the Tidal Wider Theater again. So thank you for listening, and uh, see you next time. Bye bye.